race and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. The sounds you hear at the start of today's podcast, the first sound is from LIGO, where the gravity waves have been converted into audio waves for your listening pleasure. The second sound you hear is the sound of Comet Chelyamov Gerasimenko, which is the sound that the plasma in the comet's environment, when it interacts with a magnetic field carried by the solar wind and produces magnetoacoustic waves, researchers increase the frequency by a factor of about 10,000-fold so that the comet's song is revealed. Enjoy. The third sound you hear is good old Morse code tapping out Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and the title of this week's episode is Dr. Caroline Foster, The Sammy Survey and we bid farewell to the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft. Today is Wednesday the 6th of October 2016. Each session will have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nadezhda. Privyet, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What have you got for us today? History or theory? Today we have some history, and we are celebrating more about the Rosetta mission, and I am going to tell you about Klim Cheryumov and Svetlana Cheryumenko. Okay, Nadezhda, thank you. The microphone is all yours. Spasiba. Thank you, Brendan. Today's topic is Klim Cherimov and Svetlana Cherichmenko, hard work and serendipity. In September 1969, two Ukrainian astronomers, Klim Cherimov and Svetlana Cherichmenko, were at the Instituti Astrophysiki, the Institute of Astrophysics in Elma-Ada, the capital at the time of Kazakhstan. They were there to observe known comets and hopefully to discover new ones. Using the Institute's 50-centimeter telescope, they took plate photographs of each region twice at an interval of 20 to 30 minutes. This was a common technique used to reveal unknown comets or transient objects in the night sky by comparing subsequent photos of the same patch of the sky. Unexpected visitors appear to move across the sky against the background of the fixed stars and can be easily identified. Those were the days of chemical photography, where astronomers would coat a photographic plate with gelatin and silver emulsion. At the end of the observational shift, they would develop all the plates and eventually, sometimes only after days or even weeks, measure the positions and brightness of the stars and asteroids and comets recorded on the plates. 
and tried to make some sense out of them. It was because of an incident during the processing of one of the photographic plates that Rosetta's comet was discovered. One of the objects that Klim and Svetlana were studying at the time was Comet 32P Comasola, a periodic comet that had been discovered earlier in the 1920s. So, over the course of several nights, they photographed the region of the sky containing this comet. As Svetlana was processing one of these plates on the 11th of September 1969, she realized she didn't have much solution left to develop the plates, but decided to process that one anyway, before preparing a fresh solution. This is what Svetlana said about their serendipity discovery. After the observations, I developed the plates. Unfortunately, the plate with Comasola was defective. In the middle of the plate, there appeared a small, non-developed spot, and around it, there was a space where the density of the background was less than that of a normally developed plate. I was disappointed that I had made such a mistake, and at first, I even wanted to throw this plate away. But on this faded background, not far from the center, there was an object which, at the time, I assumed to be Comet Comasola. So I saved that plate. Having come back to Kiev in October, after our observations, together with Klim Ivanovich, I began to prepare plates for measuring. On this notorious plate, the marked comet was located about two degrees from where Comet Comasola should have been, and this was impossible. We started to look through all our plates thoroughly, and we managed to find Comet Comasola in the place where it had to be. So, we had found a new comet that was also in four other plates we had developed. So, on 23 October 1969, the information about this new comet was sent to the Central International Bureau of Astronomical Telegrams. The orbit was calculated by B. Marston and found to be a short periodic elliptical comet. So the spoiled plate brought us good luck. Little did we know at the time that it would become a superstar among comets. So, they had discovered a new comet. They confirmed it themselves. Then it was also confirmed by astronomers all over the world and was named, according to protocol, in their honor as the remarkable 67P Cheyumov Gerasimenko. 45 years after their discovery, Klim and Svetlana are still active researchers in the field of cometary science and have been following the Rosetta mission on 67P. As Svetlana calls it, it's a superstar. So, this is a big shout out to Svetlana and Klim. Congratulations on all your very hard and persistent work and a little bit of serendipity, which has led to some truly wonderful science. And I think, Brendan, you are talking more about this in the news today. That's right, Nadezhda. And we're also going to give a big shout out to the South Australian Science Teachers Association who have been putting links to the Astrophys podcast in their newsletter going out to all the science and physics teachers. So thank you very much. But first, we're going to cross to Hobart in Tasmania. 
Okay, Brendan, thank you. Tasmania is on my bucket list. It is somewhere I truly want to go. Thanks, Nadezhda. Talk to you next week. Bye now. Desvidaniya, Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Hello, Carolyn. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. So today we're speaking with Dr. Carolyn Foster from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Carolyn, can you tell us, originally you're from Canada, whereabouts in Canada did you grow up? My accent might give away a little bit. I'm actually from the Francophone part of Canada, so the East Coast, Quebec province to be precise. Very good. So you speak French as well? Correct. French is my first language. Excellent. Tell us about your studies at Bishop's University, Carolyn, and your earlier work on the Umbrella Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Good on you for finding all that stuff. Yeah, so I did my undergrads at Bishop's University. It's a tiny university which is near the border between the province of Quebec and Vermont, the state of Vermont in the U.S. Yep. And so there's a little pocket there of English speakers, so a small sort of community, and it has its own university if you want. And it's a really good place for people like me who didn't speak much English to learn English within their own province. So with the comfort of still having the French around. So it was a very good place for me to learn English in the first place. It was also a very good place to study in the sense that because it's a smaller university and it's a liberal arts college, there's a strong emphasis on teaching. So I actually got really good teaching, good lectures there. And then I got the opportunity to do a master's degree there. And my master's advisor was an astrophysicist. And so we studied together cosmological voids and how they evolve in shape and sizes across cosmic time. Fantastic. So voids are just as interesting as galaxies. Yes, correct. I mean, I was always interested in sort of the larger scale things, if you want. And so the voids I found out during my undergraduates that um, they were the largest thing that were actually observed in the universe. So they immediately caught my attention. But um, you were asking also about the Umbrella Galaxy, which yes. is uh, work that I've done later on for my PhD, actually. And yes, yeah, so it's a very interesting galaxy because it's actually cannibalizing another smaller galaxy, which is actually what's responsible for the umbrella shape. So basically, uh, since people are just listening to this they don't have the image in front of them but what they have to picture is this grand design kind of spiral galaxy with this feature popping out of it which has a long stream which is very narrow and then a sort of a shell at the end of it so it makes it look like a galaxy that's holding an umbrella and basically what's responsible for the umbrella feature itself is the fact that there's this dwarf or smaller galaxy that's falling into um, the spiral galaxy and it's already gone through through a few passages through it and that's actually created that feature so this is actually essentially shredded stars from this infalling system we'll tell our listeners to go and have a look at that correct it's easy to google actually if you just google umbrella galaxy it pops out quite easily ngc 4651 very good after your work at bishop's university then you went on to complete a phd at swinburne university Yes, that's right. So I moved to Melbourne, having the background of speaking good English at that point. So I, the whole world was then open to me. So I moved to Melbourne to work under the supervision of Professor Duncan Forbes. Yep. And one thing that I really, really wanted to do, basically the early days when I got interested into the cosmological voids, is to look at observational data, in particular spectroscopy. It was almost like a sort of a magic tool, I thought. You had this light that encoded all these information. Basically, you could get the chemical 
samples, uh, sort of an idea of what atoms were present in the stars just by the spectroscopy. You could also get uh, the velocities of the stars so to see how the stars are moving around galaxies. So I was fascinated by that. So that's why I kind of picked that PhD project. So I was just basically looking at mostly at the dynamics, but also the different atoms that are present in stars around galaxies and also in globular clusters, which are clusters of stars uh, that orbit galaxies. Okay. And to do that, you would have had to use a variety of technologies. Can you tell us a bit about the technologies you've used on your PhD? Yeah. So for my PhD, I mostly used images, images from the Subaru telescope at the time, Supreme Cam. And then using Supreme Cam, we were able to select globular cluster candidates in external galaxies, so galaxies outside our own Milky Way. Basically, because they're so far away, they just look like dots on these images. But using the colors from the images that we were able to get a good sample of uh, so candidates for these globular clusters that we then went to the Keck telescope and we used the DEMOS spectrograph. And that spectrograph is huge. It's bigger than me. Like it's <laughs> it's it's uh, as tall as I guess I would say a tall person and as wide as probably 10 of us. So it's, it's really, really big. And I guess, you know, spectroscope scale as the telescope scale. So the larger the mirror, the primary mirror of a telescope, the larger the, the spectrograph that has to go onto it just because of the optics that have to fit within it. So that's why the instrument is so large. Yep. But that instrument was really good because basically it allowed us to create these masks, if you want, that we could put in the main focal plane. And so we could block the light from everything except for those globular cluster candidates that we wanted to pursue. And so we had these multiple slit spectrograph, if you want. So you can just basically target the different objects that you really, really want to look at. Yep. So we did that. And what we found as well is that in the spectra that we were getting from those slits, there was also light from the galaxy behind. Oh, those okay. globular clusters yeah so if we could subtract the spectra from the globular clusters yep. and then as well as the sky so if we could because uh, the sky background is also a big issue in spectroscopy so if we could find a way to subtract both of these from the overall spectrum then we would be left with just the galaxy spectrum yep. so we got that for free awesome yeah so we use that to then infer or get the dynamics of the stars in the very outskirts of those galaxies something that just people thought just couldn't be done because we they thought we would have to wait for the next generation of instruments to be able to do this. So we were able to do this decades before anyone else because our team had this clever idea to just use the background spectra. Yep. Now you've moved on and you're working with AAO now. What is the AAO? The Australian Astronomical Observatory. It's a national observatory and it operates two telescopes. So the Anglo-Australian Telescope in Siding Springs and the UK Schmidt as well. Very good. And now a lot of your work is around the SAMI survey. Can you tell us a bit about the SAMI survey, what SAMI stands for, what are the aims and what other technologies are you using? SAMI is an acronym for the Sydney AAO Multi-Integral Field Spectrograph. Yep. And so that's a bit of a mouthful. But what it means, there was this, I think we, I guess we have to go back a little bit, okay. a bit of the history of integral field unit spectrographs and what they are. So I was telling you before about the slits that we were putting on our targets. And so we had to mask a lot of the light coming from everywhere else. But if you're looking at a galaxy that is large on the sky, just because it's closer to you, what you really want is a spectrum at every pixel so that you can get a full map of what's going on. So every, every pixel then becomes a spectrum and has all that chemical and that velocity or dynamical information in it. Wow. So these are the technologies that came about, I guess, they've been there for decades now. And so they 
essentially they allow you so sometimes using fibers or some clever mirror tricks to actually essentially get just that a spectrum at every pixel on the sky but the true technological advance of the semi-spectrograph is that it actually has several of those let's call them IFU so integral field units so these things that create maps essentially yep. so it's got 13 of them so we put one on a calibration star and then we get 12 so we get the full map so we get you know for each pixel we get a spectrum yep. and so we've got for each galaxy then we get that full map spectrum pixels if you want and then we get that times 12. Okay so how broad is the survey? We're actually targeting 3,000 galaxies, which is essentially an order of magnitude above what had been done before. Yep. There's several other surveys running that are targeting similar numbers of targets now. Yeah, so basically we're looking at getting a... Basically the science cases for this is that using these maps, we're actually able to refine our understanding of how the environment affects galaxies. So basically what's the sort of the nurturing, you know, how this nature versus nurture aspect where our galaxies the way they are because of where they are or are they the way they are because that's just who they are okay and then uh, also looking for the relationship between how galaxies grow so how they add stars to their mass Yep. And then how the interplay that that has on the way that they spin around. So the angular momentum for people who are familiar, just basically how much ordered or rotational motion versus the sort of disordered motions. Okay. And then the final thing that the semi can look at using these maps is basically the interplay between gas falling in and out, going outside of galaxies and how that affects the star formation in these galaxies. So it's like actually really, really good and very complete way to look at how galaxies form and evolve. Fantastic. And that might have some stories to tell us about how Andromeda and the Milky Way will merge together in a week or two, or maybe a bit longer. Obviously, the Andromeda and Milky Way, well, we're inside the Milky Way, so it's not one of our targets. And Andromeda is a bit too large on the sky. But, you know, sometimes looking at other galaxies helps us understand what's happening with us. But yes, don't worry, it's not next week. We're not about to bump into Andromeda just yet. (laughs) Very good. A lot of the work done at the Australian Astronomical Observatory involves teamwork and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit how your team works together? For the SEMI team, we've got a variety of ways that we communicate. Obviously, email is a big one because we've got people working at different institutes within Australia, but also around the world. So we've got collaborators in Europe. We've got some in the US. So all around the world, we've got people working on the same data set. And so basically, one of them is how you access the data. We can log in remotely to different computers that host the data and then pull the data across. Some people will share higher level data products uh, with the rest of the team, which are small files so they can be put up on the website uh, so in an internal sort of website where you need a login to access it some of the data is available publicly so anybody can download it from the website and we also have a wiki to keep people informed of what's happened and what's like for example guidelines for observing guidelines for using data guidelines for how to publish it and so forth we have a wiki to keep everybody informed about what happens and so whenever there's a development it appears on the wiki so that's the best way and I think for all the collaborations I've work with all of them have had a wiki to exactly do that just to keep everything up to date what a great way to communicate look we're in an environment where teams have to publish how do you decide who publishes what where and when 
Yeah, that's a very good question. There's a really thorough process within the SAMI chain to actually deal with that and make sure that there isn't overlap. Obviously, you know, if you're a PhD student working on uh, the SAMI project and then there's many other PhD students around and there's other people, someone could take your project and then do it and then publish it before you do. And then what happens with your thesis, right? So that's a, it's actually a serious issue. You really have to make sure that there isn't significant overlap between what the different people are doing and make sure that the right hand is speaking with the left hand. So basically for SAMI, the way that they've remedied that issue or potential issues related to that is that within the wiki there's a possibility to apply for a project yep. so someone who has a project idea to do with the SAMI data just pops the idea on the wiki and it gets sent to the heads of the SAMI so there's a sort of an executive committee who will then look at all the other projects that have been already approved if there is potential for overlap we'll discuss it between the different authors like the people who propose the projects and then through some iteration decide whether the project can be approved or not once the project is approved and it's under your name it's yours so no one else is allowed to actually work on that uh, so that's yeah. how they've kind of remedied that so if i have a project idea what i have to do is jump on the wiki make sure nobody else has that project already reserved for them and then apply for it and wait for the answer uh, very good. We want to encourage people to study astronomy and go on to become astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmologists. Can you describe a typical week for you, Carolyn? Tell us about an average week. Yeah, an average week. I mostly work from the Australian Astronomical Observatory headquarters, which are located near the city of Sydney. I've just got a desk and I've got a computer and I've got access to other facilities sort of remotely if I want. And so a lot of my day just happens at my desk, I guess. My job, I think I'm quite lucky, is divided 50%, 50%. So I've got 50% of my time to do research and that can be whatever I want. So I'm free to choose my own research project. And then the other 50% of my work is occupied by support. So I essentially help uh, being part of an observatory. Support is kind of a, it's kind of a necessary part of working for an observatory. So I'm helping users within Australia who want to make use of facilities overseas. So I'll help them preparing, observing, and I'll help them with their data analysis afterwards if they, if they want. So I'll get phone calls or emails. I'll have to update some documentations and things like that. So I spend 50% of my my time basically serving other astronomers in Australia which I think is really nice because I'm a rather slightly gregarious person so I quite enjoy the interpersonal relations well interpersonal interactions that come with that and then with the other 50% of my time I still can tinker and have a good time playing with the bigger questions that actually interest me about astronomy. Thank you very much and do you do outreach work as well we know that science communication is an important part of a scientist's work now. Yes, it absolutely is. I think it's actually probably an essential part at this point. I mean, because we do want to attract more people into the STEM subjects, but also because everyone is kind of curious about astronomy. I think astronomy has this thing that it really can inspire people. And yep. I think everyone, even people who are not necessarily wouldn't continue into science, they still would have a, a curiosity for astronomy. Certainly that's my that's my feeling when I go around that, that I, I can see definitely that everyone has an interest in astronomy for some reason or other. What I've been doing and I think yeah, it's really important is I, I've given several public talks different you know astronomical societies so amateur astronomers societies I've gone to certain events uh, that were organized by various groups you know sometimes people go out camping and they'll invite some astronomer there's some event out in the bush and it's dark and so they'll invite some astronomers there to yeah, give a talk or discuss the night sky and stuff like that so I've done a few of those I've also done a few of the Ask AO so I 
hashtag Ask AAO Twitter oh, yes. sessions. Yep. Yeah, which happen on Wednesdays at 3 to 4 p.m. Very good. Thank you. The Twitter sessions hashtag Ask AAO is Correct. fantastic fun. <laughs> good. Have you been following us? I have been. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I've been asking a few questions too and getting some wonderful answers. That's brilliant. Now, finally, it's an opportunity for you, Carolyn, to give us your personal take on astronomy or science in general. (laughs) Okay. I really do enjoy astronomy and I really love research. And I especially sort of excited at the prospect that we are wrong. Let me expand on that. So I think it's, it's good when you've got a theory and it works and that's great. But it's even more great or there's much more to be learned if there's something wrong with it. Yep. And so hence why we just keep wanting to go further and find more things so we can find weird things that were unexpected and then having to explain those. So I really am very, very excited about the prospect of the next generation of telescopes, the next generation of instruments, the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, and what it's going to see. Because it's definitely going to find stuff that we were not expecting and where that's going to bring the whole thinking forward. Like, where are we wrong that we don't know that we're wrong yet? And I think whenever I do research, I'm not disappointed but almost when things are as expected. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. What a pleasure it's been speaking with you. We'll get in touch with you in about 12 months' time and look forward to hearing about your latest research. Bye now. Bye. That was fabulous. Now we cross over to Adelaide to talk with astroblogger Professor Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very well, thank you, Ian. We've just had a week off, a little holiday, to celebrate the end of Series 1, and Mm -hmm. we did 12 episodes and had over 1,700 downloads. Now we've got Episode 13 coming up, and that's today's recording. It's the first episode of Series 2. And in the meantime, there's been lots of things happening. There's been Cheremov Gerasimenko having Rosetta crash on it and joining the Philae spacecraft and we've had the Space Research Conference in Melbourne last week and I got a couple of wonderful interviews we'll be hearing in the next couple of episodes. You've had huge storms in South Australia and the whole state was without power and our Deputy Prime Minister said it was due to the fact that you were over-reliant on green energy and it wasn't due to the winds blowing all those power pylons over and there's lots for you to tell us about What's happened this week? I noticed that a couple of your students got their PhDs and you'll also enjoy, I'm sure, telling us what's up in the sky this week, Ian. So welcome to episode 13. No worries. I always enjoy starting off with a prime number. (laughs) Very good. Now, what can you tell us about any of those topics in the introduction, Ian? Okay, well, we'll start off possibly with the uh, storms because that influences what's been happening in the lab. I know you like have a, a quick chat about what's been happening in the lab. Yes, a once-in-a-generational storm front came through, hitting us quite severely as a result of toppling uh, 20 or so pylons, which connected not just one but three separate power systems. We lost power to the entire state, which was a minor problem, so that we had lost not, not power from... Or not only the wind farms, but also the two gas generators and the uh, interconnect 
that all of these uh, shut down because uh, not because a we couldn't get power from these areas into the major systems, but they also shut down to stop any damage to the system as a result of not one but three separate major power lines. As a result of all power going down, the university's power line shut down. We have uninterruptible power supplies going to our critical systems. Unfortunately, the uninterruptible power supply going to our freezer and tissue culture incubator turned out not to be interruptible. I turned out to be not uninterruptible, so we spent an uncomfortable night first trying to find a way to find an alternate power source, which we couldn't, and then just hoping because we had everything closed that the efficient temperature would be maintained in both systems until the power came on, which turned out to be true. Unfortunately, the uninterruptible power supply remained off when the power turned on to everything else, so we had to uh, put them onto a different power line. Fortunately, all the cells survived and nothing defrosted sufficiently to destroy it, so that was really good. But sadly, my PhD students didn't get their PhDs. Uh, what they did was that they presented in a, at a major postgraduate conference and people clustered around their posters and said how wonderful they were. And what happened to another PhD student was one of that, that major paper of hers got accepted without revisions or changes, which is pretty amazing for a research paper. So that's all been, it's been a very momentous week in the lab. In the meantime, for those of us who are comet hunters, we've been ex really excited by a number of things, primarily the end of the mission around 67P. We've been watching the Rosetta mission for nearly two years now, and as you know, they, the Pillay lander was one of the highlights of the mission where we actually managed to land a lander on 67P. Well, it sort of bounced before it finally came to rest. It's very hard to explain how difficult this is on the moon or Mars, they rotate uh, sedately, you know where they are. Common 67P is rotating in weird orbital shapes. The gravity changes from one point to the next because of the weird shape of the object. So landing on 67P is a nightmare, a completely unlike landing on a relatively stable object like the Moon, which is a, a sphere and doesn't have amazing gravitational shifts as you move over the object. So Landing on 67P was completely different. So that was pretty amazing. But unfortunately, where Philae landed was in shadow, the batteries weren't able to be repowered up. So we lost contact with the lander, except for a couple of intermittent squawks later on the mission. And we really didn't know where it landed. But a couple of weeks ago, some high-powered uh, images from Rosetta was able to find the lander wedged in a crevice. So everyone was excited about the fact we actually are able to find it again. And this time round, we managed to land Rosetta land is not really the word it sort of crashed into the comet around in a, one of the large pits not far from where Pillay had uh, landed at around one meter per second one meter per second is not really very fast but Rosetta has finally come to rest on the comet and it was doing science all the way down take photographs mapping the density of gases and so sometime in the near future we'll hopefully learn a lot more about the structure of the gases and materials around Rosetta around the, the comet from the final uh, plunge of Rosetta. So that was, that was very exciting for us in the comet world. In the news today, we'll be talking about the achievements of that mission and they are astounding. Well, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to is when they finally officially release the data about the, the density of the cometary lobes. One of the things they did was pass electrical signals through the cometary lobes to do, effectively do a 
if you like, a CAT scan of the comet. One of the, the big questions about comets is, are they uniform throughout? Are they uniform mixtures of dust and ice? Are they sort of big lumps of ice with dust between them? Are they lumpy grains of ice with, the, with dust between them? Or are they big mixtures of big rocks and big ice with dust? 67P appeared to be uniform throughout. Very good. And while we're here, we'll give a big shout out to Svetlana Gerasimenko, who I'm sure was watching with great interest. She's 71 years old. And so hi to Svetlana. We're sure that you would have enjoyed everything that's been happening over the last 12 years. That must be amazing. Yes, and I think it looks like the idea of dirty snowballs is going to be passed on. Oh, they're certainly going to be refined. They're definitely mixtures of organics and dirt and a variety of kinds of ices. There's definitely lots of water ice there as well as ethane, methane, carbon dioxide and lots of interesting organic chemicals. Very good, Ian. Now, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Lots of interesting things. If you look to the west, you're going to see uh, an amazing sight in the sky. If you look around about, say, 40 minutes after sunset, you're going to see the, the amazing lineup of Venus, the Moon, Saturn and Mars dominating the western sky. Now, if you're looking around about 5th, you'll see Venus, the Moon, Mars. If you look at the 6th, the uh, the moon will be right next to Saturn. See what will effectively a crown. The bright red star Antares, Saturn, and the moon will form a crown in the sky. And if you draw a line between Venus, Saturn, uh, Venus and Saturn, they'll carry on up to Mars. And that will look uh, beautiful. The next night, the moon climbs up further and draw a line up Venus, Saturn, moon, Mars. And the night after that, the moon will be next to Mars. Excellent. For those of us in the southern hemisphere, you'll be able to see just above Caus Australis, you'll be able to see a fuzzy star. And this is the beautiful classical globular cluster M22. In binoculars, it's really obvious, bright globular cluster. And in telescopes, it's beautiful, a big ball, fuzzy ball of stars. So on the 9th and the 10th, Mars will be right close to this globular cluster. And if you've got a telescope with a wide field eyepiece, you should be able to fit Mars and M22 within the wide field eyepiece. So my prediction is that when Mars is close to M22, it's going to rain down buckets again. <laughs> but, but for uh, this coming week, there's going to be lots of beautiful things to see, which you don't need a telescope for. But if you have a a set of binoculars or a telescope in, on the 9th and 10th, Mars close to M22 will be really good. And, and on the 6th, without a telescope, that's fine. But I think we might find that the Moon close to Saturn, that, that whole dynamic of Venus, Mars, Saturn, Moon, Mars will look very beautiful. But you might also find the Earth shine as the as the evening world bears on and as the Earth shine begins to glow with Saturn. That will look really quite nice Running a pair of binoculars over that area will look really quite nice. Before I do that, I'm going to briefly uh, tangent my tangent. I mentioned the Earth shine of the crescent moon, and do you know that for us on this particular side of the international dateline, we're going to have a blue moon, new moon this month? Blue moon. You may have seen on the interwebs that we're going to have a black moon and this could mean the end of the world. Those of you on the other side of the international dateline, there were going to be two new moons in September. For those of us on this side of the international dateline, the two new moons fall 
October. So we've got a we had a new moon on the first of October, and we're going to have a new moon on the thirty first of October. And this has been happening every couple of years for time immemorial. I've been reporting on things like this for ages. So having two blue new moons is very unexciting because you can't actually see them. I talk a lot about low-cost astroimaging, and I've talked before about using simple point-and-shoot cameras and the ways you can hang, you can attach point-and-shoot cameras to your telescope. But I've also talked about using webcams. Now, there's a variety of ways you can use webcams in your astronomical imaging, and because this, is, of course, is the Astrophys podcast to make it uh, relevant to more relevant to this, because after all, this is about astrophysics. You can use webcams to actually, for example, monitor brightness of variable stars or nova, such as the nova. Lupus that just went off earlier this week and has yep. already fallen below magnitude 8, unfortunately. So webcam can do more than just take pretty pictures. They can be involved in real backyard astrophysics. So I want to give you this as a ta- as the take-home measurement message, that webcams can be very useful in, in the kinds of science that backyard astrophysicists want to be involved in. Now, there's a a whole range of different webcams out there, but typically the kinds of webcams that you want to use in in astroimaging are ones that actually have CCDs. Make sure if you're going after a, a webcam that it's a CCD webcam, not a CMOS webcam. The webcams that were most desirable for astroimaging were the Philips 2 cam and the Logitech 400 webcam pro. Uh, there's a lot of more modern webcams. Also, the major problem with the uh, older webcams, if you get a hold of them, is that many of them no longer have drivers. I run my uh, 2Cam under an old $100 laptop. If you're running later versions of Windows, then you'll need a webcam that runs under those versions of Windows. The other thing you need is to make sure you can take apart your webcam. You'll need what you need to do is take the lens out of your webcam. So, of course, disassembling your webcam will avoid the warranty. So, you'll need to disassemble the webcam, take the lens out. Although some of the webcams, you can just unscrew the lens. Again, there's a huge variety of out there. There's lots of sites out there that uh, that will help you. Once you've taken the lens out, then for some of them it can be as simply as simple as gluing a spare lens tube onto the camera so you can slide it into the end of your telescope. Others you can get adapters which you can screw into the to your CCD cam a webcam and uh, then put it into the telescope. And it's as simple as that. You now have a working CCD cam. It will work beautifully for lunar lunar imaging. It will work reasonably well for planetary imaging. It will work reasonably well for variable star imaging for brighter stars. There's also a number of ways you can modify certain kinds of webcams so they can take deep exposures. Again, there's a number of websites out there that are dedicated to modifying webcams so that you can use them for deep images. Again, it's beyond the purview of this website to go through this step by step. Exactly how much low cost? Obviously, you have to have a, a laptop uh, which you can take out to your uh, telescope to do that. You have, that you already, that's cost you already have to have. Uh, you need to purchase a webcam. 
these, if you want to uh, purchase one new, it'll cost you anywhere between $100 to $200. And, of course, if you modify it, you are going to void the warranty. And the advantage, Ian, is that to get your focus correct, you're watching it on the screen of your laptop, so you can make any minor adjustments to your focus as you go. Yeah, you're watching it live on the laptop. This is that the image itself may not be the absolute fantastic for any single frame, but you can take hundreds of frames and stack them in a tool like like, uh, Registack or things like that, which will greatly improve your quality of imaging. Very good, Ian. Well, thank you very much. Once again, we've been talking with Dr. Ian Musgrove from Astroblogger. And we can't recommend highly enough that you go and search the Astro Blog website. It's easy to find. It comes up as number one in Google. So thank you very much, Ian Musgrove. No worries. As always, it's a pleasure to be on. Goodbye, clear skies, and may you look up and see amazing things. Thank you very much, Ian. Bye now. And to introduce this week's news, I'll play again the sound of Comet 67P, Cherumov Gerasimenko. Here is the Astrophys News for Wednesday, 6th October 2016. And of course, the big news this week was the culmination of the Rosetta mission. We have learnt so much from this mission. This story is compiled from information from James Bullen in an article for ABC Science. If the launch of a Rosetta mission had gone to plan back in 2004, we would never have heard of Comet 67P Cheryumov Gerasimenko. Indeed, we'd be talking about a comet called 46P Wirtanen, but the launch was delayed by four days, and 46P Wirtanen missed its chance to be the most studied comet of all time. Luckily, 67P had what was needed. It was a short-period comet that loops around the Sun between the orbits of Jupiter and Earth once every 6.6 years, and it was going to be in the right place at the right time to rendezvous with Rosetta. When the mission began, scientists knew very little about 67P, while well, that is apart from Klim Cheryumov and Svetlana Gerasimenko in the Ukraine, they discovered it in 1969. Scientists knew little more than that, other than it was about 4 kilometres in diameter, and travelled at a speed of about 135,000 kilometres per hour. Twelve years later, data sent back by Rosetta and its probe Philae from 67P has drastically reshaped the way scientists think about comets. And the work is just beginning. It will take years to get through the huge amount of data sent back. So what did we learn? Most importantly, we learnt that the building blocks of life are found beyond Earth. Scientists always suspected that comets may have aided in the creation of life on Earth, and Rosetta helped them confirm it. During the early years of the solar system, when cometary bombardments were more common, astronomers believed comets carrying organic compounds crashed into Earth, seeding future life. If scientists could find the building blocks of life on a comet out in space, it would lend weight to the notion they helped kickstart life on our planet. The discovery of these elements, these complex carbon molecules, was the primary goal of the 
Commission and Rosetta and Philae massively succeeded in confirming that, said Warwick Holmes, who worked as an avionics engineer on the ESA's Rosetta project. Using its onboard instruments, Rosetta made repeated detections of glycine and amino acid and phosphorus in the area around Comet 67P in May this year, especially when gas jets blasted dust from within the comet out into space. These are two of the most critical substances necessary for the creation of life. Glycine is associated with the creation of protein, while phosphorus helps create DNA and the energy for DNA and cells and is essential to all living organisms. Another great discovery, there was an oxygen surprise in the comet's coma. While oxygen is a common element in the universe, its simplest form, O2, is hard to find because it usually binds with other molecules or atoms. Scientists were extremely surprised to find molecular oxygen in 67P because it would have had to survive in a pristine condition since the very beginning of our solar system 4.5 billion years ago. They believe the discovery adds evidence to the idea that comets come from that period and are now exploring how the presence of oxygen in 67P might provide clues as to how the solar system formed. When Rosetta launched from Earth, the scientists had no idea what the comet it was setting out to be looked like. Every aspect of a mission, including the landing of Philae, was designed with the team in the dark about the shape of 67P. We were hoping something like a potato or even spherical, but it was anything but. It was this very strange duck-shaped feature, Mr. Holmes said. The comet is about 24 cubic kilometres in size, about 4 kilometres long. It would nicely fit over Sydney's central business district. Scientists believe 67P was formed in a low-speed collision between two previously separate comets. That gives clues about what the early solar system would have looked like. Dense, dusty and full of rubble. Another great outcome of the Rosetta mission. It's a dust ball, not a dirty snowball. 67P challenged the expectation of the ESA team in other ways when they discovered its surface was covered with smooth dust plains and craggy rocky cliffs. Mr Holmes said the scientists expect to find water ice on the surface of the comet in keeping with the popular dirty snowball notion which describes the idea that a comet is mostly made of ice with some dust and rock inside it. But 67P contradicts that hypothesis. There's very little ice on its surface. Instead, its appearance is diverse and very dusty. Vast dust dunes and smooth plains cover parts of the comet. Other features of its surface include rocky boulders, cliffs and deep pits. The popular theory is that comets are big balls of ice, frosted or dusted by carbon chemistry, Mr Holmes said. But in our case, it seems we got a lot more dust and carbon chemistry than we have ice, different to the ratio that was our first thinking. Analysis of the dust floating above the comet shows the dust is made up of spherical sub-micrometer grains, providing clues about how planets in our solar system first formed. A comet like 67P probably didn't bring water to Earth. Along with being responsible for bringing substances critical to the creation of life to Earth, scientists have long thought that comets also brought water to our planet, forming the Earth's oceans as they crash-landed into its surface after Earth had cooled somewhat.
Scientists hoped they'd find water on the comet with a similar isotropic ratio to that found on Earth, meaning the ratio of hydrogen and deuterium in the water on Rosetta would be the same as the ratio on Earth. Eleven comets have previously been measured to find their isotopic ratio, and just one has matched the ratio on Earth, Comet 103P, which comes from the Jupiter family of comets, a group of comets that are influenced by the giant planet's gravity. Comet 67P is also from the Jupiter family, yet its isotropic ratio is entirely different to Earth and Comet 130P, appearing to scuttle the hypothesis that Jupiter family comets contain water similar to that found on Earth, and lending weight to the idea asteroids, rather than comets, may have greater responsibility for bringing water to our planet. It's actually made the answer to that question of whether comets brought water to were far more challenging. People thought there was a nice, easy answer, but there actually isn't, Mr. Holmes said. So that reminds us once again that each new discovery in science unravels some previously sometimes strongly held beliefs. We look forward to hearing more about this mission as the data gets examined. That's it for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave!